All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord's guidance on our study. Our Father, we come to you today because we recognize that we don't think the way we ought to think. We don't understand reality always the way we should understand reality. That the only way that we can have light is to submit to the light of your word, the light of your written word and the light of the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalmist prayed that it is in your light that we see light. That is, that it is in the illumination of your word that we are able to understand truth. But apart from the illumination of your word, we are left in darkness only to guess on the basis of limited data what reality consists of. So, Father, we pray that we might be submissive to your word today as we study it, that we might reflect upon it, coming to a better understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, and that that might in turn be used by you to strengthen our faith, strengthen our spiritual uh, spiritual life, and also to provide us with the training, the equipping that we need to communicate the gospel to others. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And we are in the last paragraph of this section. Actually, as I have organized this material, the section that we just completed began in Matthew 18.1 and extends down to verse 28. And then we have this section in 29 to 34, which is a hinge or transition episode that uh, Matthew uh, brings to light here. And there are some differences between what Matthew says and what's said in Mark and Luke. But it's an interesting transition to help us go from what we've been talking about to what is coming up. In the previous section, we saw a focus, a wrong focus, by the disciples on what it would take to be great in the kingdom. We saw this evidenced by the question they're asking back in 18.1, and then later on in 19, uh, James and John uh, got their mother to go to Jesus and to ask uh, if they could sit the left and right hand of Jesus. So their focus was on who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And in relation to both of those episodes, that of 18.1 and that later on in 19, Jesus uses the illustration of a child. Often this is misunderstood. We understand that, that, that the illustration is about being humble like a child, but it's not being humble like a child because children have some innate sense of humility. Anybody who's raised children know that that's not true. Uh, the orientation of their sin nature is about as self-absorbed as it can get. 
uh, it had to do with the society. And in that society, a child had no significance, no status whatsoever. It was better for a child to neither be seen nor heard, and uh, they were not of significance until they were uh, reached adulthood, depending on which culture, Greek, Roman, or, or, or Jewish. We also see in this in this section, we also saw that that there was a contrast to the between this attitude of a child and the rich young ruler, and the attitude of the rich young ru- ruler was not unlike that of the disciples in that he was saw had an emphasis on his own status in this life and what that would mean in the next life. He was. Three things that that cultures then and cultures throughout history have valued. He was wealthy, he was young, and he had power. And people worship all three of those things, and when you have them in combination, then that's uh, an even more deadly distraction to your spiritual life. And that was his problem. Uh, not that he was not saved, but that he was saved, but he... Uh, had did not have the right the the right priorities, so Jesus used him to further his teaching to the disciples that the person who would be great in the kingdom is the person who would be uh, concerned with service and not status, be concerned with forgiveness and uh, genuine humility, and not concerned with seeking position and power. So Jesus closed that section with the last two verses that serve as the backdrop for what we're going to see in the next section. In Matthew 20, 27, and 28, Jesus said, Whoever desires to be first among you, that is, whoever desires to be important or significant, let him be your slave. Now, that's just not the format that we understand in any culture to the path to greatness. I don't think the path to the presidency by any of the contenders right now is viewed as a path of being a slave of the nation. And yet this is the path of Jesus. The same word that is used here is used in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11 to describe Jesus. He was a slave, a doulos. And then he said, uh, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, uh, but to serve. And there we have a shift from the word doulos to the word uh, uh, diakoneo, which means to, to be a servant. So both of these aspects are brought out by the language that Jesus uses. And then he said, and to give his life a ransom for many. So what we see here is the idea of sacrificial service as part of the path to to greatness, and this is emphasized by Jesus. So what we see in these two verses as it sets up this transition is, number one, it's going to uh, be followed in verses 29 to 34, uh, and this... uh, episode with the two blind men is used as an illustration of how Jesus is serving those who are in need as he will heal the two blind men of their blindness. It also is contrasting the uh, self-serving, status-seeking attitude of the disciples with that of these two blind men. They are the lowest of the low in that culture. 
They are beggars. They are filthy. They are unkempt. Their robes are tattered, and they haven't been washed, and they, they, they stink. Nobody wants to come close to them, but they gathered outside of the gates of cities because usually travel, travelers were the ones who carried money, and so that's where they hoped to beg a few uh, shekels off of those who were traveling so that they could survive. But they are usually unseen. Notice the irony that the those who are blind are not seen by those who are going by. Sort of like we do not look at those who are panhandling at the various intersections uh, around the city. We just sort of look somewhere else. We don't look at them. And that would have been the same kind of situation there. So these two beggars represent those who have no place and no significance uh, in society. Uh, but in contrast, uh, Jesus is saying that we as believers, those who are disciples, need to be serving even those who have no status and no significance um, in their culture. We should also note in terms of this transition that the blind men will call out to Jesus as the son of David. Notice, we'll notice that the people call him Jesus of Nazareth, just a reference to his humanity. But the two blind men recognize that he is the Messiah. They call him the son of David. And this is a title that is used only three times before in Matthew. And it's repeated in this episode uh, for emphasis. As we look at this, uh, we read that, that they say, they cry to him, uh, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. And then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So whenever you see anything repeated like this in scripture, that is for emphasis. So we have this clustering that takes place right now. And we have two uses of the title son of David here. We have two uses of the son of title, uh, the son of David in a, another clustering that takes place in chapter 21, and then there's another reference to it in chapter 22. So of the uh, times that, that Matthew uses the, the phrase son of David, five of them come up between the end of chapter 20 and chapter 22. That ought to tell us something in terms of the emphasis that is taking place uh, in Matthew. So we see that the use of that title here is transitioning us from uh, what Jesus has been teaching the disciples in the previous three chapters to what is going to be the emphasis in the next uh, several chapters, and that on that is on his role as the as the Messiah, his role as the Messiah, who is the greater son of David, who is coming to give his life to redeem those for whom he will die. He will die for the sins of the world and provide redemption. Now, as we look at this verse again, what Jesus says in verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, he uses this particular title. This is his most a favorite title to use to refer to himself. It comes from Daniel chapter 7 and is clearly a messianic, a messianic title. And here he connects the dots again that the Son of Man is coming to give his life a ransom for many. Now this phrase is really important for understanding the nature of what Jesus is going to do on the cross. 
There are two words that, Greek words that are used here that are of significance. The first word is the word that is translated ransom. It's the word lutron. And the second is a preposition that is used there that is translated in English with the word for. That this is a preposition that indicates substitution. There are two that do this in the Greek. There's anti and there's huper. And both are used to describe the substitutionary aspect of Christ's death on the cross. In church history, there are several views that have developed over over time as to why Jesus died and what was the nature of the atonement. And the view that is based on the scriptures, the view that he came to give his life as a substitute. It's depicted in the Old Testament through the, the sacrifices where when a lamb was brought into the uh, tabernacle or into the temple, then the uh, worshiper would place his hand upon the lamb. And as he placed his hand upon the lamb, he would... Uh, recite his sins, and so the symbolism is that those sins are transferred to the lamb, and then the lamb would be sacrificed uh, and would be the payment for those uh, for those particular sins. There's only one group of people today that still practice animal sacrifice. There's uh, fewer than 900 of them. They're called Samaritans. And they come together every year, as they did this last week on Wednesday, I believe, which was the Samaritan Passover. And every year they have a sacrifice. Uh, they sacrifice the Passover lambs for Passover on Mount Gerizim. If you want to see an excellent video of this, you can go to Joel Kramer's website, uh, which is SourceFlix. One word, sourceflix, F-L-I-X dot com. And he has a couple of videos there. And you might also want to Google uh, or, or search it on YouTube because uh, someone alerted me to another app on my iPhone called uh, Periscope. And you can go down to any area you want to. And if you went down on Wednesday to, to Nablus, right outside of Nablus, there was a little dot with... A four in it, and if you tapped on that, it would open up, and there was a, a Jewish guy who uh, apparently does these video blogs, and he was filming it live, and so you could see an actual live sacrifice, and if you've never seen that, uh, it is quite uh, sobering and quite compelling because it really brings home a lot of the aspects of what Christ did on the cross for us, that you have this innocent animal that is being killed because you sinned. And when you do the substitution and realize that Jesus died because you sinned and I sinned, it has a different impact on us than what we uh, may normally think of. But the idea there is substitution. It is not the governmental theory of the atonement, which was put forth by uh, by a number of people, Hugo Grotius, for one, who was a lawyer in the post-Reformation period, and that somehow this satisfies God's righteous government. Uh, it's not a moral uh, view of the atonement, uh, which is put forth earlier by people like Anselm, 
that somehow we need to go and do likewise and be willing to give our life for whatever uh, we believe the truth to be. None of those, the Bible says, this is a substitutionary atonement. Now, the first word that's up there tells us part of the uh, dimension of this. There are two core Greek words that are used to describe the atonement. There's the word agorazo, which refers to the marketplace, and it refers to buying something in the marketplace. So it refers to a purchase of something. And there are a couple of different compound words with agorazo. And then used in parallel to it is the word uh, uh, lutron, the noun, or lutrao, the verb. And this also usually has some sort of a prepositional prefix with it, like anti-lutron, which emphasizes the substitutionary aspect. Ex-agorazo means to buy out of the marketplace. And uh, so when you look at these, there are eight different words that are used in the original languages to describe the, uh, what, uh, the redemption, and basically are usually translated redemption, but each emphasizes a different dimension. But the one thing that we ought to always remember is it's a financial term. Now, whichever word it is, it's a financial term, and it's talking about paying a price, purchasing something. And that price was paid when Christ died on the cross. Colossians 2:12 to 14 makes it clear that that certificate of debt, another financial term, was nailed to the cross in 33 A.D., not when you trusted in Christ. Your sins weren't paid for, and you weren't redeemed when you trusted Christ as your Savior. You were redeemed when Christ died on the cross. That's the focal point. Now, that redemption is applied in terms of our regeneration when we believe in Jesus. But the redemption, the payment, is actually paid for all. It's a universal atonement. It, it, pays, it pays the price for all and for all sin at the instant of salvation, but it is not universally applied. It is only applied when we trust in Christ, and at that point that redemption is applied and God regenerates us. So there's this connection that occurs between regeneration that occurs at the, as a result of the fact that that, that payment has been pried and paid so that that redemption that is paid for at the cross, there is a forgiveness, one kind of forgiveness that occurs because that's been paid. The word forgiveness means to cancel a debt, another financial term. But we understand that that actual forgiveness of sin occurs experientially when we trust in, in, in Jesus Christ. So we've done this study. If you want to go back to the Colossians series, study Colossians 2, 12 through 14. I go through it in, in some detail. But right now, as I pointed out, talking about Joel and uh, the, the video, what's going on with the Samaritan Passover, is Passover was just observed uh, this last Friday evening. On Friday evening, we, and according to the Jewish calendar, uh, the 14th of Nisan began, which is when Passover is observed, so that yesterday evening at, uh, at sundown, another day began. The Feast of Unleavened Bread began at that point. So we are in the middle of the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, today. So Exodus provides us, the Passover provides us with further understanding of 
what redemption is. That is a biblical story. As I pointed out on Thursday night, one of the principles in Bible studies, we don't learn doctrine from stories. Stories illustrate doctrine. But we learn doctrine, especially doctrine for the church age, from the New Testament, from the New Testament epistles. But all of these stories, these narratives, these events that occurred are designed to illustrate all of these doctrinal principles so that we can understand them in a, in a more concrete fashion. Now, at the time that the Lord delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, he redeemed them from slavery. That is the parallel. We talk about that often when we observe the Lord's table, that that is the parallel for understanding redemption, that just as they were purchased from slavery, literal slavery, so we are purchased from slavery to sin. Exodus 6, 6 says, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem, the Hebrew word there is ga'al, redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. See, a price was paid by the Egyptians for the deliverance, the redemption of, of Israel. Exodus 15:13. In thy loving kindness, thou hast led thy people whom thou hast redeemed, and thy strength thou hast guided them to thy holy habitation. So the Exodus there is the model. So by looking at that, we see how God provided that redemption. And how did that, in terms of the Israelites, how was that exhibited? It's exhibited by the death of the lamb, that sacrificial Passover lamb that was slaughtered uh, for them on the afternoon of the evening before the 14th uh, of Nisan. So the sin penalty is paid. And when we look at this this verse back in Matthew twenty twenty eight, we see that Jesus says that he emphasizes service, and then he says that part, that that service is manifest that he will give his life as a ransom for many. Now, if you're Jewish at that time and you knew the Old Testament from memory, there is a passage that would come to mind. Probably doesn't come to anybody's mind here, but it would have come to their mind because this language is similar. Now, there's no word for service in the section of Isaiah from Isaiah 40 to 66. We call this the the section of the dealing with the suffering servant. Uh, although we don't have the word service in Isaiah chapter 53, we do have similar language. And in Isaiah 53:11, I want you to notice the term many. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. This would be brought up in the thinking of any anyone who has memorized Isaiah 53. He's he talking about the suffering servant, the Messiah. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. We've studied this recently in our study on um, uh, Thursday night in relation to uh, witnessing righteous servant is the Hebrew word tzedakah, justifies the verb form, and so it is emphasizing the doctrine of imputation of righteousness and justification because in just a few chapters in Isaiah 64, Isaiah says all of our works of tzedakah or righteousness are as filthy rags. So the problem is that we have a tzedakah deficit. 
We have a righteousness deficit. We can never accumulate enough righteousness. So the role of the suffering servant was to die on the cross to pay for our sins that on the basis of his righteousness, that he is the righteous servant, the Seneca servant, he shall justify or provide righteousness for many. So that is, Jesus says, I am coming to give my life a ransom for many. And, and Isaiah 53, 11 goes on to say, for he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. I would translate because he poured out his life unto death. Uh, nefesh, as well as um, uh, Numa in the New Testament, also indicate life. His life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So the term many isn't limiting this. Those who hold the limited atonement try to say, see, he died for the many, not the all. If you do a word study on this, the term many is referring to the all. Uh, but it is this specific language uh, that is used. So Jesus is illustrating the concept of service, uh, specifically through these allusions to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And then he's going to demonstrate part of what he is doing to serve, uh, to demonstrate this kind of service and this kind of humility uh, as he enters into Jericho. Now, geographically what has happened is Jesus has been down in the area of the Jordan, down crossing the crossing over from uh, what is now Jordan back into Israel, what was then Perea back into the area of Judea. And he's come up from the uh, from the Dead Sea, and he's up about um, he's coming up to uh, coming up to to uh, Jericho, and Jericho at this time was a beautiful city. Uh, it's not on the exact location of the ancient Jericho. That tell was there at the time, and as he is approaching uh, Jericho, he would walk by the tell. It was about a mile from the new city. The new city had been built. Uh, a couple of centuries earlier, but it had really been transformed under Herod, of course, because Herod was quite the architect. But this city, because it's so beautiful, that area, if you've ever been there, is just just barren, lifeless dirt. <laughs> and there is nothing there, but Jericho is there because there is a well there. There is water there. And so from the irrigation from that water, they, they have date, they grow date palms, many other other things, and so you have this oasis in, in the desert, and and it stands out. And so travelers that were coming to Jerusalem, because remember we are one week from Passover. So these crowds that are traveling with Jesus are uh, those who are making their uh, religious pilgrimage, one of three religious pilgrimages demanded by the law. They're coming; they've come down from Galilee. They are coming up from the Jordan. Uh, up to Jerusalem. And this is the last place you would stop. It's in the spring, this time of year, so it's not too bad. Temperatures in Jerusalem right now are about, the highs are about 80 to 84. So if you're down near the Dead Sea, the highs are north of 90, probably in the mid-90s. So before you make that walk, it's not very far. It's about the distance from here down to the George R. Brown Convention Center. 
It's about 16 miles. You could probably walk that in about four to five hours if you're in fairly decent shape. But that's it's not flat. You're making about a 3,000-foot climb in those 15 miles, and that's pretty steep. So you want to make sure you're fairly hydrated. You want to make sure that uh, you, you've rested before you begin so people would stop in Jericho uh, along the way to uh, fill up all their uh, uh, water bottles and everything else, whatever they were carrying, in order to make their way up to up to Jerusalem. And so they came to, to this city. One other interesting historical note is that Mark Antony gave Jericho to Cleopatra as a gift. Probably didn't know that. It's not spiritually significant, but it's free of charge this morning. So Jericho was a beautiful, beautiful place. That's my point. It has been uh, developed by Herod the Great, and he had a palace there. And so this is a gorgeous place, just uh, just a little bit uh, separated from the old city, uh, the old city in the tell of um, of Jericho. So we read that as they went out of Jericho. Now there's a lot of debate over this because there are uh, two different phrases that are used uh, in these accounts, and people sometimes make a big deal about this. See, there's a contradiction in the text. Uh, there are different ways to handle this. I'm not exactly sure which is the best way to handle it, but there's two different ways. One way is that when they went out of Jericho, uh, they're talking about that Jesus has passed by the old city and he's headed to the new city. So when he's coming out of Jericho, this would have taken place uh, between the two, and depending on what you're talking about, uh, either preposition out of or into would be uh, would be uh, valid. See, when you have in Mark 10:46, when they came to Jericho, as he went out of Jericho, and then Luke says it happened as he was coming near Jericho. So a lot is made of this, and I think there's a couple of different ways to describe it, and it could be that there's also a process where they started um, uh, calling to Jesus at, at one location and continue to follow him to another location. So there's uh, there's different ways that this could be resolved without uh, thinking that there's some sort of, of a contradiction here. Obviously, Jesus is approaching the new Jericho, going past the old, and uh, as Mark tells us, there's a large multitude with him. He's got his disciples and a great multitude, but Mark and Luke just talk about one blind man, and Mark names him. The other two accounts do not name him, and, and most people believe that the reason Mark names him is because he would be known uh, among some people in the early church. Oh, yeah, we know Bartimaeus. We knew him. He was, he was saved and he was part of the congregation there. So, so he's named, he's identified because this is a real person who lived and breathed and was known by people who lived, uh, lived in the area and were familiar with their, uh, their test, with his testimony. Now, what happens is as we read the accounts, uh, the blind men began to cry out to Jesus. They call out to him. They clamor to him. Uh, Luke uses this word, uh, boao, and which means to cry out. It's a synonym of the other word that's used, and it's used in places like Mark 1-3, where it describes John the Baptist, the one crying out in the wilderness. But it's also used of Jesus when he screams out on the cross in Mark 15:34. So that's a word Mark uses in other places, 
Uh, Kradzo is the word that is used in Matthew. It's used um, uh, of those who are uh, in, in a desperate situation or screaming out. For example, in relation to Peter, when all of a sudden he takes his eyes off the Lord, he starts to sink into the water. He cries out. He's screaming out, Lord, save me. In Matthew 15:22, we have the episode of the Canaanite woman, the Gentile, who is crying out, uh, yelling to be heard above the crowds that the Lord would uh, deliver her demon-possessed daughter, uh, cast the demon out. Matthew 21, uh, 9, the crowds that are uh, proclaiming Jesus' entry into Jerusalem are crying out there with a loud voice, Hosanna to the Son of David. We're going to have a lot of fun when I get back from Israel going through Matthew 21, looking at the background in, in Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is the first of the Hallel Psalms. Hallel is the Hebrew word for praise. So when you make it a command, it's hallelujah, and that means praise. It's a command, second person plural command. You, y'all praise. And then hallelujah is the uh, objective, uh, the are the object of the verb praise God. So hallelujah uh, is a command to praise God. It isn't a command to say hallelujah or praise God. Praise God is supposed to have content to it. And today we often, because there's a lack of teaching, people don't understand that praising God isn't accomplished by saying praise God. It is uh, accomplished by telling why you are praising God, what God has done for you, what God has accomplished for you. So they are, they cry out. So Psalm 118, the first of the Hallel Psalms, is where this comes from. And to understand that is really important. It's the Hallel Psalms that the, that Jews sing at the conclusion of a Seder. And we're going to see a lot of insights. And that first Sunday when I get back, which is the third Sunday of the month, when we'll be observing uh, the Lord's table, uh, I'm going to go through Psalm 118. So that's going to set up a, a framework for us to understand this. And what they're crying out is, uh, in the English, it is Hosanna. But in the Hebrew, it's Hoshana, which is like Yeshua, it's a form of Jesus' name, and it is the verb from the verb to save. And so what they are saying when they say Hosanna is they are saying, save us, son of David. And uh, that's going to be uh, interesting to look at, but they they recognize that they're crying this out the same way. And then Matthew 27, 50 uses this, Matthew uses this verb, Mark uses the other verb to describe Jesus screaming on on the cross. But what's important as we look at this is what they are screaming. They're calling out to Jesus as the son of David. They say, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. This is one of Jesus' titles, and it is the title that emphasizes his royal descent and his claim as Messiah to be a descendant, uh, a descendant of David. And so it is emphasized... Um, it's used 15 times in the Gospels as a specific title for Jesus. What's interesting is it's uh, used a couple of other times. Joseph was a son of David, so that's not a messianic title. It's used once in Jesus' genealogies, which is more of a genealogical reference than it is a title. And it's used 10 times by Matthew. 
the more more of any of the others. It's used three times by Mark. Two of them are in Mark's account of this episode, and it's used three times by Luke, also two times in this episode, and each use it one other time towards the end. It is a title that emphasizes his royalty. It emphasizes that he has a legitimate claim to be the king of the Jews and that he is the messianic descendant of, of, uh, of David. It relates him to the uh, Davidic covenant, that he is the one through whom uh, the promise will come of the, of the kingship and of the kingdom. It connects him to Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 and Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6 which connects uh, the Messiah to the Davidic covenant. Now, the first this is the first significant use of this title, uh, excuse me, the first significant use of this title for Jesus in Matthew occurred in Matthew 9.27. It's been used two times before. And in Matthew 9.27, what's the situation? You ought to know this off the top of your head, right? Matthew 9.27, two blind men came to Jesus to be healed. And that's the first time they say what? Have mercy on us, O son of David. Uh, it's the same thing. Now, liberals come along and say, oh, well, Matthew is a little confused, and he's conflating the accounts, and, and that's just because they don't want to believe the Bible. But these are two totally different situations. The, that event occurred up in Galilee. This event occurs, occurs here. And in both cases, there were two people. Now, why does Matthew emphasize two, and the other two gospel writers only emphasize one? Interesting question. Now, there's a couple of answers that are suggested. One is that Matthew just increases the number for effect. Now, that's from folks who don't really believe the inspiration and inerrancy of the Scripture. And so their idea is that, that Matthew is just, just emphasizing something. And usually the reason they suggest is that the law said that uh, uh, something was confirmed by two witnesses. So Matthew wants to inflate the number to have this legal witness. Uh, another suggestion is that he's just uh, conflating the accounts from the previous event to this event. In other words, Matthew's not real sure about the facts, and he's not that clear, so he's making mistakes. Neither of those first two options are, are valid. The most likely explanation is that here, as in Matthew 9, 32 and 33, Matthew is giving the full account to fit the purposes for his writing the gospel. Luke and Mark tell the story a little differently to fit theirs, and they just focus on one of the men. But Matthew is speaking of two men both times. And he speaks, I think, of both events because both events serve as two witnesses to this truth about Jesus. But what is the truth about Jesus? Jesus is the Messiah who can heal the blind. In rabbinic thought at that time in the first century, that the, only the Messiah, there would be, uh, when the Messiah came, there would be false miracles, but only the Messiah could give sight to the blind, and only the Messiah could heal lepers. And so when Jesus heals lepers and when he gives sight to the blind, he is giving irrefutable proof through his miracles that he is the Messiah. And so this is an indictment upon the Pharisees for their rejection of him. So I think that it, by using two situations, that's a double that doubles the effect. In both cases, he, he emphasizes that there are two there. There are two witnesses. That also confirms uh, exactly what happened. But we know that there were also other 
uh, people who are blind that Jesus healed. For example, in John chapter 9, there's a story of the blind man there that Jesus that Jesus healed. So there were others that he healed which gave evidence or supplied his credentials. Now those credentials come out of the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 35 verses 5 and 6 and Isaiah chapter 42 verse 7, uh, we have passages that show that, that the Messiah would do this. In Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And then Isaiah 42, 7, To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. The idea here is that <coughs> those who are sinners are in spiritual darkness. Those who are saved... If they are not walking by the Spirit, they can also live in spiritual darkness because they are not walking in the light of, of, of God's Word. And so as they cry out to Jesus, the multitude re- refutes them. The multitude is not very positive here. This is just a large group of people. It's made up of some who are believers and some who are not. Probably most of them do not because in the Mark account or in the Luke account, they simply refer to Jesus as uh, Jesus of Nazareth. When the men ask him who's passing by, they say, well, it's Jesus of Nazareth. So we're told in verse 31 that the multitude tried to shut them up. And uh, because they kept crying out even louder, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So Jesus hears them, and he stopped in verse 32 and called, called to them and said, well, what do you want me to do? Now, I think that because they called upon him as the son of David, that they are not like the blind man in John. The blind man in John wasn't looking to be healed. The blind man in John 9 uh, is an unbeliever, and he is... Uh, he is receiving sight. Often that is used as a paradigm for people who say, see, first of all, God has to regenerate you and give you sight before you can believe. Um, and I, that's often a, a strong Calvinist position, but I think that's a misuse of a narrative. What we see here and in, other, and in the Matthew 9 passage is that, that both cases you have those who are already believers coming uh, to be healed of, of sight. And the demonstration point is that Jesus is the one who gives spiritual sight, whether it is to believers or to unbelievers. He is the light of the world. He is the one who illuminates us to spiritual truth. So they asked for their eyes to be open, and Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Just notice that he says, immediately. Jesus' miracles weren't process miracles. They didn't take two or three days, uh, didn't take two or three weeks. They immediately received sight. It was an immediate response. Now, to wrap up, I want to plug this in to uh, what the Bible teaches about life, uh, life and light. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This is a great chapter. John could also be called the gospel of light because of the role that light plays in the Gospel of John. And I didn't want to put all of these verses up on the screen because it's a lot of them, but I wanted to just read through this section to bring this point to bear. John chapter 1 in the in the intro, introduction. John chapter 1 begins, In the beginning was the Word. This is a reference to Jesus as the Logos. In the beginning was the Word. 
and the Word was with God, indicating that the Word is fully God, and he's with God, which means he's also eternal. And the Word was God. They're identical in essence, but distinct in person. He was in the beginning with God. That is, when the earth, the universe, the heavens and the earth were created in the beginning, Genesis 1.1, the Logos was with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Verse 3 tells us that he is thoroughly involved in, in creation. And then in verse 4, we're told, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus' life, his life illuminates mankind. Then we read, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It's not understood by unbelievers. And then when we read down, there was a man sent from John, sent from God, whose name was John. So now we're talking about John the Baptist. This man came for a witness to bear witness of what? The light, that is, the Word, Jesus. He came as a witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, that that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. That is common grace. That is an illumination that is available to every single human being that comes from Jesus. Jesus' presence into creation, the fact that God intruded himself into creation and became a man illuminates all mankind. We could spend a lot of time thinking about that. The implication of that is that the world is in darkness until Jesus came. There is a significant shift in, in humanity just because of the Incarnation. The side effect of the incarnation is light was suddenly available to all mankind as it had never been for the previous 4,000 years. And that, that's a phenomenal thought. As light comes into the world, and then I want you to uh, skip down to, uh, turn a couple of pages actually to John chapter 3, verse 19. And there John says, and this is the... Or, it's got a, if you've got a red letter Bible, it's in red letter, but I, I dare say no human being can determine when Jesus stopped talking and John started talking. But by verse 16, Jesus is no longer talking. Uh, verse 19, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing, practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light. The light's available, free of charge, does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So what we see here is that that the, Jesus as the light of the world comes into the world. John twelve forty six. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. That believing in him is the issue. Not works, not doing, but believing in him. But Jesus is also the basis for illumination to believers. In John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them again, talking to the crowd. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me, following him is discipleship terminology, not, belie- not the same as believing him as we've studied. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That's what the psalmist is saying. In God's light, we see light. This is talking about 
how we grow after we're saved. And then a great passage in Ephesians 1, Paul says this, Do not cease to give, uh, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Revelation is disclosing previously unknown truth uh, that can only be learned from God. The revelation, the knowledge of him, and he's also praying that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. How many times do we pray to God that he would enlighten the eyes of our soul, enlighten our minds so that we can understand God's word? Enlighten our minds so that we can understand how to apply God's word to our life. Enlighten our minds so that we can continue to grow and mature. But it is through the Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world that we have that initial illumination at the, at, at salvation and then ongoing illumination through God the Holy Spirit. That is a focal point. So Jesus came to give light. He demonstrates that by healing the blind. This demonstrates that he is who he claimed to be the Messiah. Now, next time when I return from uh, Israel, we will look at the next chapter where we get into the last week of Christ. And that's going to take a long time. So much wonderful stuff there. And we will begin, as I said earlier, with an intro in Psalm 118, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, study these things, to be reminded of our so great salvation, that we have a Savior who died as our substitute. He died in our place. He died for us, that that by uh, his death he paid the penalty for our sins. It's paid in full. The issue is not that we have to go do anything to pay for that sin. It is paid in full. The issue is simply trusting in him because the only way that that death is applied to us is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus said in John 3.18 that, that, that the condemnation is for those who did not believe in the name of the Son of God. So if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Christ, who's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus said, believe in me. He asked Martha, do you believe this? That's the issue. Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you challenge each of us as believers that we are to follow Jesus. We are to serve him. We are to be concerned with not with our status in this life, but with our status and position in eternity, which means that we focus today on serving him, on growing spiritually, and having an impact on the world around us by our willingness to communicate the gospel to those who are desperately in need and serving one another in the local church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.